Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Ricky. I'd love to get straight into the encouragement uh, this morning. As you have heard, we are starting a new sermon series called Amazing Grace. And when you hear the word grace, it's, it's used often. And therefore, we sometimes don't pay a lot of attention to it. Grace might be the name that you've given to your daughter, or it's something that you do before you eat a meal, or it's something that you extend to someone if they have hurt you in some way. You, you extend grace to them. And we are going to take a couple of weeks to look at this, this word and what did, what did Paul mean when he spoke about the word grace? Because I believe that if we understand what grace is, it, it's it's improves our relationship with God. It benefits us in how we experience the nature of Jesus, and we should live that out um, with Christ in us. So as an introduction, the title for my sermon today is Abundant Grace. I'd like to read a, a story that actually happened in June 1988. The London Wembley Stadium, they hosted a concert in memory of Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday. And that concert was to raise awareness for Nelson Mandela's imprisonment. It called for the freedom of Mandela, who had been in prison since 1962. And the concert was broadcast to over 60 countries. Some of you maybe remember that concert that took place. The concert featured Dire Straits, Sting, George Michael, Guns N' Roses, Natalie Cole, Joe Cocker, Simple Minds, Tracy Chapman, Bee Gees, and Salt and Pepper. What? For the youngsters that don't know who they are, speak to your parents. They'll be able to let you know. And for 12 hours, these pop and rock artists played to a crowd of 70,000 people. You'll see there's a, a peck there. But then the last act, act stepped up. And it was unexpected. Opera singer Jessie Norman, she took the stage with no band and no backup singers. She began singing Amazing Grace. The whole arena fell silent. By the second verse, 70,000 people were standing and singing along with her. Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? And if you've never read that book, I encourage you to do that. It's one of the, the best books that I've read. He referred to this event in the following way. He said, the world thirsts for grace. When grace descends, the world falls silent before it. When you think about grace in your life, what does it do for you? Does it make you stop? Does it make you slow down? Does it make you become silent? And to, and to ponder on just this beautiful gift that God has given to us. We're going to be reading in, Rome, in the book of Romans this morning. And if you can turn in your Bibles to Romans 5. And just as uh, uh, an introduction to this portion of Scripture, Romans is one of the most intricate and well-articulated books that Paul wrote. And... Um, the, the picture that it creates is of this courtroom, uh, 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 the, the, uh, uh, an encounter that took place in the courtroom where Paul is justifying salvation. 
He's giving a well-articulated account on the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. So it is incredibly well-written. It's actually quite confusing also, and it's one of the most difficult books in the Bible to understand. So I'd like to thank the team for giving me this portion of Scripture this morning. The overarching theme in the book of Romans is that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, and this allows us to be justified. Now, big words. We are saved by grace. Grace is an undeserved gift that we receive from God. It's something that we don't deserve that God gives to us. We receive it through faith in Christ. We don't receive the gift of grace through anything that we could do in our lives. It's something that Christ did for us, which enables us to receive it. And because of what Jesus did, we are justified. Justified means just as if you have never sinned. And we're gonna be looking more at that. God is saying to us that we are not guilty in his eyes. And we see two, two halves in the book of Romans. The, the first half speaks about our salvation and what it means. And then Paul speaks about sanctification. And because of this new life that we have in Christ and the new identity, it should lead us to live a holy life uh, that God has set aside for us. So that's a summary of the book of Romans. But let's, let's read together Romans 5, verse 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespasses, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gifts of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this portion of scripture is talking about two men. It's talking about Adam. It's talking about Christ. It's talking about life and death. It's talking about righteousness and sin, judgment and free gift, 
justification, condemnation, obedience, disobedience. And these are big words, you know, and it might be confusing. What I want to attempt to do today is to not get into the details of the theology of this portion of Scripture, but to, to really just share the understanding of what Paul was trying to communicate here. Paul was um, creating an analogy between Adam and Christ, and I've brought some props along. I've uh, reverted to the Lego theme this morning. As you can see, uh, this is Adam, if you can't see at the back. He does have a fig leaf present, and I'll put Adam there. And here we have Christ, okay, Jesus. He looks like a Star Wars character. <laughs> I had to cut his lightsaber off. So the main point of this portion of Scripture is that what Christ has done for all who are in him is far greater than what Adam did for all who were in him. In verse 14, we read that Adam is a type of him who is to come. That type of him who is to come was Jesus. So what, is it, what does type mean? If you read in some translations, that word type means pattern. So it could mean an example or a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 also refers to Jesus as the last Adam and the second man. So here we see this, uh, uh, Paul is using this, he wants to explain this portion of scripture by using this comparison and contrast. So it's not to say that Christ is like Adam and Adam is like Christ. There are one or two things that are similar in the comparison, but there are also contrasts. Therefore, this, this pattern John Piper says the following with regards to this portion of Scripture. Paul wants to clarify what he means at the end of verse 12 by the phrase, for all sinned. I believe the answer is that Paul means we all sinned in Adam. That his sin is imputed or assigned or allocated to us. And that universal human death and condemnation is God's judgment and penalty on all of us Because we were in some deep and mysterious way, we were united to Adam in his sinning. Now, I'm going to explain this a bit later, but for those of you who have read John Piper's work, he is an incredible theologian. I spent many hours just reading through his his, uh, uh, text, just getting a better understanding of this. But what he is saying is that in this portion of Scripture, when it says that all have sinned, Paul is saying that all have sinned in Adam. We did not receive a sinful nature because one day when we were two years old, we committed a sin. We received a sinful nature because of what happened when Adam disobeyed God. And it's important that we understand that right in the beginning. Because if it's said that we, we became sinners because of our individual sins that we committed, then wouldn't it mean that we would become righteous because of the righteous deeds that we did? And Paul is trying to make that clarification straight away. The parallel that Paul wants us to see is that just as Adam's sin is a sign to us because we are in him, so Christ's righteousness is imputed to us because we are in him. 
So, another stakeholder in this illustration. This is man. Okay, and I've gone for the Lego movie figurine. We've said here that we are in Adam because of the, of the sin that Adam committed. So, I'm going to put man in here, but I'm actually going to change him around. You see, he's got a smiley face there. If I was in Adam, I, I, I wouldn't have a smiley face. I would have a sad face. So, sad face. Man in Adam. When Adam sinned, this is what happened. All of mankind was in Adam. Paul contrasts Adam with Christ. All that Adam brought into the world, Christ overcame. Adam was a type of the one who was to come, as I've mentioned. In all the ways that Adam fell short, Christ triumphed. And we're going to look at that. In this text, we see three contrasts that Paul made between Adam and Christ. The first one is that Adam brought sin and Christ brought righteousness. In verse 19, it says that the result is that many were made sinners. Sin was unknown in God's world before Adam disobeyed him. When Adam sinned, he suffered a constitutional change, a fundamental change. He didn't just do something bad. His entire nature changed. He became a sinner with a sin nature and a disposition towards sin. He passed that nature onto all of his descendants, which was mankind. Adam was the first man. Adam was the start of history of mankind. So everyone who followed from Adam was considered a sinner. When Adam fell, the entire human race fell with him. His guilt and condemnation spread to everyone. But Jesus perfectly obeyed God. Through his one act of righteousness, in verse 18, and through his obedience, verse 19, many will be made righteous. Now, some scholars debate that, are they referring to Jesus' one act of going to the cross, as it's mentioned in Philippians 2.8, and, and because he died as a, a sacrifice for our sins, that was his one righteous act. It's also, we also need to take note that his entire life was a life of obedience, because Jesus needed to live a sinless life in order to be that perfect lamb, that perfect sacrifice for the sin that we had. Jesus is the true Adam. He never had lust in his eyes or greed in his heart. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. Jesus was the true Adam. That was the script that God would have wanted to have taken place. Also, he has shown that God's gracious gift of righteousness in Christ is far greater than the devastation of sin that resulted from Adam's disobedience. Twice, Paul, he uses words much more in verse 15 and 17. He wants to encourage believers in Christ with the certainty of their future in him. Paul also uses words like abounded for many, abundance of grace, abounded all the more. What Paul is trying to say is, is that yes, the sin that came into the world, it, it was bad. 
it's the worst thing that could ever have happened to us. But don't worry. The beautiful news is that the grace we receive through Jesus is much more, much more than the devastation of the sin. God is saying, I don't want to be known as a God of judgment and condemnation. I want to be known as a God of grace and a God of love. And we're not meant to have thoughts of God as somebody who sits up in heaven with a stick waiting to, to, to hurt people or to, um, you know, to, to not love. He, he is a gracious God and he loves us. How do we apply this to our lives? Meditate on the sinless life of Jesus. See him obeying in your place. Let that encourage you to walk in holiness and integrity. Jesus has done the work for us. There's nothing that we have to do in order to become righteous. We respond in faith. The second contrast is that Adam brought condemnation Christ brought justification. The result of Adam's disobedience was condemnation. It was a separation, an eternal separation from God. God had every reason to leave us in our sins. There was no obligation why God should have pulled us out of this desperate situation. There was no reason why he should have extended grace and mercy. Yet while we were still sinners... Christ died for us, Romans 8, Romans 5 verse 8. God delivered us, God delivered up his son in our place to make us righteous, verse 19. And he brought justification to all those who believe. That is why Paul wrote, grace abounded all the more, in verse 20. Through grace poured out in Christ, sinners can be made righteous and declared just before God. Adam, because of what he did, brought about a separation in our relationship to God. Because of what Christ did, he brought us back into right standing with our heavenly Father. This is the heart of the gospel. But nothing in the world works like that here. In our systems, whether it's education, sports, economics, or business, one must perform before receiving the verdict. You must complete the mission you must take the test. You must win the game. You must pay the debt. You must complete the task before a verdict is declared. With the gospel, the verdict comes first. God declares us righteous because of the work of Jesus. Then we do good deeds in accordance with God's will. We should never reverse this, what God has done. We, we don't need to do anything in order to receive the gift that God has given to us, which makes the grace that God gives to us abundant. It's beautiful. How do we apply this to our lives? Do you believe that God accepts you because of who you are or because of what Christ did? Will you rest in Christ's work and let it transform how you obey God? I personally find this very difficult. It, it's, there, I spend many moments just thinking, Lord, I don't have to do anything in order to be made right with you. Often you feel like if you've done something wrong, it's, it's like climbing a ladder to try and 
reach this perfect relationship with God. And yes, you get onto a good run and you get halfway up the ladder, but if you sin, you take three steps back and you've, you, you never tend to reach this perfect relationship with God. That, that's not what grace is. Grace is a removing of that ladder, a removing of any kind of work that you need to do in order to be in right standing with God. And then the third contrast is Adam brought death. Christ brought life. Paul refers to death six times in this portion. Adam's sin caused death to come into the world and spread to all people. But where sin reigned through death, grace reigned through the righteousness brought about by Jesus. Where Adam brought death, Jesus brought eternal life. Now, here's an interesting point to note that Paul said, after he said death reigned in verse 15, we would expect him to say life reigns. But he goes on to say that we shall reign in life. Because we know Christ, we can live and reign triumphantly, no matter what our circumstances are. And Pastor Steve Murrell made reference to that. Because of what Christ has done, he doesn't just give us life in exchange for death. He gives us life, but he gives us the grace to reign in life. And that's another benefit of grace. Grace empowers us to live the life that Christ wants us to live. C.S. Lewis, he wrote the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He, he said the following. When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. And that was when the lion died and, and, and rose to death. And C.S. Lewis understood this. He was a great, a great writer, being able to, to take principles of God and, and put it into his, his literature. How do we apply this to our lives? How does Christ's victory over death comfort you? Will you trust in Christ's work as your answer to death? Jesus is the true and the great Adam. He's the only answer to sin. I mentioned that Adam was the beginning of mankind. History started with Adam. And sin went to every man. No, no person is exempt from that. In order for you to be saved from that line of, you, of mankind, we have to engage with what Jesus has done. We have to accept and receive what he has done for us. No other religious system or worldview can answer these problems. Jesus Christ is abounding in the grace that the world thirsts, the grace all its people need to receive. And I'm going to conclude my message by using one other illustration. I'm going to ask the, the band to join me. So, man has been sitting in Adam for this whole sermon. It's time he, he was removed. And I need to turn him over because this is a good moment. So, as you go into 2020, can I encourage you 
do not forget the beautiful gift that Jesus has given to us. And not only are we in Christ, but there's more to that. So let's imagine you going along 2020, you're living your life, you are faced with some circumstances, some difficult moments. Life is not easy. And I think we had a sense of that just in our prayer this morning. Um, Eugene was reminded of a portion of scripture from Hebrews 12 about let us remind one another about the grace of God. And what we've mentioned this morning, I think most of us have heard before, but it's good that we remind ourselves of the beautiful gift that Jesus has given to us. So if we live in our life and we, we do face difficult situations, I wanna encourage you that first of all, you have Christ in you. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of, of glory. There's baby Jesus. We have used this illustration before, but it's worth showing again. We go through life with Christ in us. If you receive what Christ has done for you at the cross, you have him within you. But not only is Christ in you, you are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Ephesians 1.13 also says that in him you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So not only is Christ in you, but you are in Christ. There we go. Can you see yourself? Whoa. We don't want to lose Jesus. You are in Christ. Not only are you in Christ, but Colossians 3 verse 3 says that for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I don't mean to be stereotyped in the, the picture of God here, but it's the closest uh, picture I could get of what God represents. We are in God. How does that make you feel? I know it's just an illustration, but I, I feel protected. I feel I've got someone on my side. No? So let's say the enemy does come to you this year or may have already been coming at you. He's got to get through God first. And he doesn't have a good track record. God was able to kick him out of heaven. Secondly, he has to deal with Jesus if for some reason he does get past God. The Bible does say that, that Satan would bruise his heel, but it goes on to say that he will crush your head. So again, he doesn't have a good track record against Jesus. And if for some reason he does get past God and Jesus and he gets to, he has to deal with Jesus a second time. So folks, can we, can we go into this year with confidence? Can we, can we just, and, and this is, there's nothing that we've done in order to gain this, this beautiful gift. The only thing that we need to do is we need to respond to what Jesus has done for us.